So the reading is taken from the book of Revelation. It's chapter 14 and the whole chapter, verses 1 to 20. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters, and like, like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulphur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labour, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple, and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press 
rising as high as the horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Thank you, David. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be together this morning. Um, It's quite a heavy passage, isn't it? Um, We need God's help to understand it and, most importantly, to put it into our practice in our lives. So let's pray that he would help us understand what's going on in this passage. Father God, we know that and trust that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be fully equipped for every good work. So we pray that your spirit would be our teacher this morning and help us to understand what's going on in Revelation chapter 14. Amen. Uh, Pop your hand up if you went to the ICP production of uh, Sound of Music. Um, I think it was just before Christmas, wasn't it? I I was going to sing one of the lines in it, but after Nathan's singing performance this morning, I'm not sure I could really follow that, so you can be spared my singing this morning. I was going to sing you that famous line, how do you solve a problem like Maria? You know it. Well, you'll be pleased to know I'm not going to talk about the sound of music this morning because I know nothing about the sound of music and I probably don't remember many of the words. But we are going to ask this question. How do we solve the problem of this passage? Because it is a problem, isn't it? You read a passage like this and you read some of the things in this passage and it creates all sorts of problems for us. And if it doesn't, then I think there's something wrong with us. This passage talks about God's fury and his wrath. And we say, yeah, but I thought God was loving. What's going on there? And then more than that, this passage even has phrases like this, tormented with burning sulfur. And naturally we would just say, that's just evil. So so how do we reconcile? How do we get to the bottom of this passage? Well, it's phrases like this that you see in Revelation 14 that have caused many people through the generations to speak very publicly against the God of the Bible. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, the first are, are very sort of public atheists. Um, Sam Harris, many of you will heard of. Uh, he wrote um, what he called the Atheist Manifesto in 2005. If you've never read it, it's worth Googling and just reading it. It's his manifesto that he wants to put out to the world to convince us that atheism is the way to go. Now, I've read it. I think there are a lot of false premises in it. I think there are a lot of inconsistencies in it. But the undertone in Sam Harris's um, Atheist Manifesto is basically an anger at suffering, which is a good thing, right? So it's easy to dismiss Sam Harris because he's an atheist, but actually behind what he's writing is a frustration and anger. He cannot reconcile the suffering and the brokenness of a world with a loving God. And he writes about it. And the conclusion he draws is there can't be a God. Uh, what about Richard Dawkins, a perhaps more famous, more outspoken atheist who's um, been around a bit longer? This is one of his most famous quotes, and you would have read this perhaps if you've ever read any of his books. Um, I think he was having a bad day. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. We probably don't even know what all those words mean. This guy's angry. He's angry at reading passages like this, which present to us a picture of God that we perhaps don't like. 
There's two very sort of well-known atheists. Let's come to some who call themselves Christians. Steve Chalk, who's a Baptist minister who set up Oasis Trust. He talked about Jesus hanging on a cross as being cosmic child abuse. And Steve Chalk and others are seeking to rewrite the Bible to take out the bits they don't like. Baptist minister. What about Jeffrey John, who's a liberal Anglican bishop? He's written publicly and spoken this phrase, I quote, the cross of Christ is repulsive and insane. That's an Anglican bishop. What about Giles Fraser, who's another minister in South London? The idea of God murdering his son for the salvation of the world is barbaric and morally indefensible. It turns Christianity into cosmic child abuse. So here you've got some outspoken atheists who are angry. You've got some who claim to be Christians who are angry. And then consider yourself, and I don't know where you would sit on that spectrum. There's a lot of people here. But the first thing I'd love to us to consider is when you hear this sort of thing, I'd caution us against just reacting against it and dismissing it just because we perhaps might not agree. It's important to listen and to feel the frustration that people have. The frustration of, of trying to reconcile the love of God and the wrath of God. Uh, so we were, we were considering um, this fact that when we're trying to reconcile these really difficult things, uh, the wrath of God or the love of God, it's important to listen and to feel the frustration that many will feel. It's important not to just dismiss these feelings just because we may have a, an answer. But it's also why last week I cautioned us and said, make sure when you listen, particularly if you're listening to people preaching online, you listen not just to what is said, but to who is saying it. Or rather, don't just listen to who is saying it, listen to what they say. Because here, in the examples I gave, are people who would confess to being followers of Christ, but they want to dismiss, really, the central theme of the whole of the Scriptures. You can't just be a Baptist minister, or an Anglican minister, or a minister in the FIEC, or any other network, and by definition, therefore, be faithful. You're only faithful when you preach Christ. But how do we solve the problem of this passage? It's a really big question. Well, first of all, let's just think a bit about a bit of wider context. Actually, there's a glorious promise in the book of Revelation. Come with me back to chapter 3. I'll put the words on the screen. This wonderful promise we've looked at already. Uh, To him, to her who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. It was in this context that a couple of weeks ago, the, the sermon was really entitled, Wake Up. And I said, look, I'm, I'm worried about some here who perhaps are not really growing as Christians, who are just particularly comfortable spiritually. Because the context in the book of Revelation is this idea of Christians persevering through difficulty and God who is faithful to us in hostility. But isn't it wonderful, as you come to a difficult chapter that talks about the wrath and anger of God, remember first of all that Revelation is full of wonderful promises about how God holds us secure. Remember last week we looked at um, chapter 7, the 144,000, a symbolic number representing the people of God. And they're there in chapter 7, and then all the way through the chapters we've looked at in subsequent weeks, you get to chapter 14. And guess who's there? 144,000 representing the people of God. The idea being God holds on to his people through all the opposition, through all the ill health, through the persecution, through the uncertainty, through their doubts. And God's people still stand secure at the end. But notice, and we looked at this last week, God doesn't just hold us secure. 
He also leads us to safety and celebration. We saw, didn't we, last week in chapter 14, verse 3. They sang a new song. It's a song that only people who know Jesus Christ as Lord can sing. And it's a joyful song. And then we read in verse 14, these people are ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. The Lamb is symbolic of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's what it means to be a Christian. To follow Jesus Christ wherever he goes. And notice we're following Jesus Christ here. The lamb, the true lamb. Not the deceptive lamb we looked at last week. The dragon who, or the beast rather, who was dressed like a lamb but spoke like a dragon. Do you remember that? The devil who masks himself, clothing himself to be good, but actually is very destructive. And then notice chapter 14, verse 4. Following Jesus is about turning away and turning to. I think that's what is meant here with that reference to defiling themselves with women. It's speaking of spiritual adultery. When we turn away from the living God, we turn to falsehood. When we turn away from falsehood, we turn towards the living God. And so the question for all of us is, am I going to follow my own desires or am I going to follow the desires of the Lord Jesus? Uh, here's something that a man called St. Richard of Chichester said in the 13th century. You may not have heard of St. Richard, but I'm sure you may have heard of what he said. It's quite a famous prayer. It's spoken in the context of following Jesus. Day by day, Lord, three things I pray. To see you more clearly, to love you more dearly, and to follow you more nearly day by day. Some of you are just mouthing those words. You know them. It was St. Richard of Chichester, 13th century. He's speaking of following Jesus. And what does following Jesus require? Chapter 14, verse 12. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. As you look at that quote on the screen, ask yourself the question, am I at the moment patiently enduring whatever life is throwing at you? Ask yourself, am I someone who is obeying God's commandments? Not just the commandments I like, but all of them. And perhaps most importantly, by God's grace, am I remaining faithful to Jesus? Really important questions to ask. The cost of discipleship. Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, they must take up their cross, deny themselves and follow me. It's not easy to follow Jesus. And it's not easy to keep clinging to him. When we face hardship, it's not easy to cling to him when we're having to reconcile difficult truths, his love and his anger. But before we come to chapter 14, I want us to see in the wider context of Revelation, it's a passage, it's a book of the Bible full of glorious promises that God will hold secure his people. And if you're trusting in Christ, I want to encourage you this morning, he will hold you firm. And that's a wonderful thing. But then notice in our passage... A severe warning. These are difficult, but let me ask you a question. Are warnings a good thing? When you're driving on a fast road and then it tells you there's a big bend and it says slow down to 40, there's a warning. Is that a good thing? You see cars around here in the ditches because they've not heeded that warning. When you see appliances at home and they say on them, keep out of reach of children, there's a reason. A warning is good. It keeps them safe. It's why as a parent, you might warn your child who has a screwdriver in the hand not to stick it in the plug socket. Why do you warn children? Because you love them. See, actually, we don't often like the warnings of the Bible, but in life, we think that warnings are important. So what's going on there? Are we actually very good at receiving warnings ourselves? It's easy to give a warning to another, 
but to receive a warning from God, perhaps not so. Do you remember back in chapter 13, there was that very difficult couple of verses, chapter 13, verses 7 and 8, that talked about all people groups worshipping the beast. It's uh, trying to describe the fact that people from every tribe, language, tongue, nation, there are people all over the world who turn away from the living God, and it's a great tragedy. But do you notice in our reading today, chapter 14, verse 6, we're told of this eternal gospel that is for all people groups. Just as all people groups have turned away, so the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all people groups. And hear this really carefully. God in his love delivers a severe warning to a world that turns away from him. And the message comes three different ways through three different angels. Do you see it there from verse 7? The first angel comes and says, fear God and give him glory. This message from this angel is worship God and worship him alone. Uh, and the verse explains he's the creator of everything. See, so who, who's more worthy of worship than the God who made the cosmos? That's what this angel's saying. And it's a loving warning because it's saying anyone who doesn't worship Jesus Christ as number one is actually selling themselves short because they're worshipping something that's not as great as him. They're giving their loyalty and their affection to something that's not as great as him. So the first angel says, fear God and give him glory. Recognize who he is. Then the second angel comes, verse 2. And their message is this, fallen is Babylon the great. Now there's a real depth to that phrase, Babylon the Great. It means all sorts of things. Ultimately it's talking about the devil and all his influences. We looked at the beast last week. The devil we know has been ultimately defeated by Jesus on the cross. But this angel is saying fallen is Babylon the Great. And in a sense, fallen ultimately will be people who worship him. People who don't serve the living God. It won't be a good end. And then the third angel comes, verses 9 to 11, and gives a warning of devastating judgment for all those who don't turn to God for life. Perhaps you're wondering what that reference was to wine in verse 8. Well, think about what wine does. Alcohol, it dulls the senses, doesn't it? If you were to take an average person on the street and you were to try and talk to them about the coming judgment... It would be as if that they were spiritually drunk. Senses so dulled. What do you mean a coming judgment? Are you bonkers? That's how people respond. And our senses have become so dull because we've exchanged the glory of worshipping the living God for something else. And we find pleasure in that. We've forgotten that there's a judgment to come. And Revelation 14 tells us about that. And then we read in verse 10, they will drink the wine of God's fury. The anger of God is a function of his perfection. It's not a kind of ranting anger. It's a a function of his perfection because God is perfect in every way. He sees what is perfect. He sees what is imperfect. And he doesn't just sweep imperfection under the carpet. He doesn't just say it doesn't matter. But then you get the really troubling verse, verse 10. Let's look at this together. They will be tormented with burning sulfur. I think this is the sort of verse that Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and Steve Chalk and others are railing against. But we need to be careful as we read that. It's picking up the language of Genesis chapter 19. Perhaps you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what it's trying to do is convey to us the seriousness, the severity of ignoring God. 
See, sometimes maybe we've watched a cartoon and we've got this kind of caricature of God in heaven. And the caricature is like this. I'm God and I made the world and I made you to worship me. And if you worship me, then you'll be fulfilled and blessed. If you don't worship me, I sent my son into the world to die for you. And if you ask him for forgiveness, he'll forgive you and you can know me again. But woe betide the rest of you. And there's this caricature sometimes is built up in our mind that God is this sort of malevolent bully, as Richard Dawkins said. Some sort of malicious God up in heaven. And he's throwing down lightning bolts to heaven. And he, he's going to take great pleasure in burning in sulfur those people who don't turn to him. It's a very medieval idea. But that's not a true depiction of the heart of God at all. You read in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 18, verse 23... Do you think, this is God speaking, do you think I like to see wicked people die? God takes no pleasure in the death of any. God takes no pleasure in his judgment falling on any. He doesn't. The story of the Bible, the true story here, is that God takes no pleasure in judgment, but he still judges because he's focused on his glory. And there's a big difference Judgment for God is not about his pleasure, it's about his glory. It's about him putting right everything that is not right. Let me help you a little bit more with this, because this is difficult. If you're still struggling with the wrath of God, consider this. What is the opposite of love? Hate. But often, we caricature the opposite of love being wrath. And that's what these new atheists do. And you read this stuff and you end up thinking, maybe they're onto something. Because they talk about the love of God and they pit that against the wrath of God and go, how do you reconcile them? But the opposite of love is not wrath. The opposite of love is hate. God hates no one. But he, uh, he shows his wrath and his anger for people who don't know and love him. There's a big difference. If you're wrestling with this, a couple of books I recommend you, you go and read. This one here is really helpful. It's a little book, a big subject. Don Carson, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. He knows that this is difficult, and he's written a book to try and help us, and I really recommend this. But if you want to think about the love of God and the wrath of God, more in the, the sense of discipleship, this is a slightly longer and bigger book. It's a bit harder work, but it's brilliant. David Wells, God in the Whirlwind. And he, throughout this book, talks about the holy love of God. It's the holiness of love of God's love, that requires him to judge that which is not right. It's a really helpful book if you're grappling with either of these two things. But know also that in the Bible, the wrath of God always follows warning and always follows opportunity for repentance. And sometimes we can, we can latch on to a passage that talks about judgment and it seems so extreme and yet it always follows God's promise to forgive and follows a warning from a loving God. The God of the Bible is not some capricious, malevolent bully, as Richard Dawkins has caricatured him. He's a God of love who is so focused on his glory, not because he's arrogant, but because he knows that he is the greatest. And so when we worship anything that's not him, we're selling ourselves short. Actually, the wrath of God is a wonderful doctrine because it tells us that Justice matters. It tells us that injustice will be dealt with. There will never be one day a woman who is beaten in her home and no one ever sees. 
where justice one day will not be won. There will never be some small child that's raped in a slum and left to die where justice will not be met. There's never going to be a time when some bully of a, of a company director in some massive multinational who just abuses people to make great wealth for themselves, there will not be justice. And so actually when we're talking about the wrath of God, we mustn't just react and go, I don't like that. That's not the God I want to worship. The wrath of God is a good thing because God is saying, I am just and I'll deal with everything that's not right. Injustice matters to God. That's why his judgment is a good thing. But notice as well in verse 11, there's this great reminder that the judgment of God also helps us to see that life beyond death will be perfect for those who trust in Christ. And that's a great thing. Verse 11 talks about the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. When do you see smoke? You see smoke when there's been a fire. Fire is symbolic of judgment. So the idea of this smoke that goes on forever and ever, it's this reminder that justice has been met and that wrongdoing will end. That wrongdoing, it's like, it's like this eternal reminder that wrongdoing has come to an end and God has dealt with it forever. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? There's nobody here, I bet there's nobody here who says that justice is not a good thing. But suddenly when we're talking about our own hearts and our relationship with God, we suddenly rail against the justice of God. Strange when we actually stop to think about it. And so what you get in this passage here is this glorious promise. It's the big picture of Revelation. God will hold secure his people. Be encouraged if you're trusting in him. You get this severe warning. And I hope that you can see a bit more clearly that the wrath of God is a good thing. And it is a severe warning. And we need to take this seriously and not just dismiss bits of the Bible we find difficult. The problem is not with God and what he's written. The problem is with our understanding or our acceptance of what he has written. But I want to close by us reflecting on this wonderful truth. I want us to see from Revelation 14 just the amazing heart that God has for you and for me. Let's come back to verse 11, to that really troubling phrase, torment. What on earth are we meant to do with that word torment in verse 11? Because we read about this torment that will go on forever and ever. I want to try and help us to understand that. Think about heaven. Heaven is a place of eternal life, of infinite quality. So think of whatever you enjoy in this world, multiplied a million times and only ever getting better and better and better. Heaven is a physical place. You'll touch things, you'll smell things, you'll see things, you'll experience things. Heaven is a place of eternal life, of infinite quality. Heaven really is living God's life. It's fully living out what it means to be made in the image of God. And heaven is experiencing the love of God for all of eternity. That's exciting, right? Contrast that with hell. Hell is a place of eternal life, of infinite horror. And hell is a place where I live for myself and therefore I experience eternal loss. And perhaps there'll be some here. And if it's not people here, there'll be people you know who would answer to what I'm saying now with this. Yes, but I don't worship God. I'm not a Christian and I enjoy good things. And I get great pleasure. So how is living my way going to be hell? Because actually, living my way is pretty okay. 
Here's something to help you or perhaps this person to think about. God is the source of everything good. He's the source of love, the source of joy, the source of pleasure. And God is not present in hell other than in his judgment. And so in a place where God is not present in his love, in his joy, in his peace, all those things are removed. The reason that hell is such a terrible place, a place of eternal life of ultimate horror, is because I'm handed over to living my own way. And I'm removed from the presence of a God who is a God of love. I'm removed from the presence of a God who is a God of peace. And so if you're not a Christian, but you enjoy good things today, that is because God is unbelievably kind. And lets you enjoy a wonderful family, perhaps. Lets you enjoy the pleasure of a great experience, the taste of wonderful food. But one day, those things are removed because God's presence is removed, other than in his judgment. And so it's impossible to not know God and enjoy for eternity pleasure. Because there's no pleasure where God isn't, because he's the source of pleasure. And I think that's for this reason why verse 11 says there will be no rest day and night. Eternal life without Christ is restless. Why do you think Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest? Why does he say that? Because eternal rest, eternal Sabbath is only found in Christ. And so we're really foolish if we think that happiness now without God equals happiness for eternity without God because there's no happiness without God and if we ignore him now the only reason we can be happy is because he's incredibly kind but one day he takes that all away and so he says I think as it were with a tear in his eye listen friends if you persist in ignoring me it will lead you to a place of no rest that's why Revelation 14 exists because God says I love you and I don't want you to experience that It's a very different caricature, isn't it? A different picture to the caricature that Richard Dawkins has presented of who God is. And I think this is all explained in the harvest of of verses 14 to 20. Do you see there, there's two harvests. There's the harvest of ripe grain, there's a harvest of ripe grapes. The ripe grain, verse 16, is a picture of those who know Christ. They're harvested, they're gathered together. And these are the people of chapter 13 who sing this new song. Verse 18 is the ripe grain. A picture of those who've not trusted in Christ. There are two harvests and they're speaking to very different people. And this is the reason I'm persuaded. We're told that both the harvest of the grain and the harvest of the grape is ripe. But the word used in verse 15 for ripe and the word used in verse 18 for ripe are different words. Because they're talking about different harvests. There's a harvest of salvation for people who know God. And there's a harvest of judgment for those who don't. And notice too how this harvest of the grape is described in verses 19 and 20. The grape is trampled in the winepress outside the city. That should be setting off alarm bells in our ears because this image of the winepress and this image of being outside the city all the way through the Bible are images that talk about the judgment of God. In Isaiah chapter 63, there's this amazing prophecy that is ultimately a prophetic word pointing forward to Jesus Christ. And people, as it were, are asking him, why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? And the response is this, I have trodden the winepress alone, 
from the nations. No one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and I trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. But when you read Isaiah chapter 63 in its context, it's talking about redemption, which we're going to think about tonight. It's talking about rescue. And then the verses that follow say this. God speaks, it was for me the day of vengeance, the year for me to redeem had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. Here's the significant bit. So my own arm achieved salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. See, wrath and salvation come together. The opposite of love is not wrath, it's hate. And God hates no one. But in this passage here, we see salvation and God's judgment coming together because salvation is impossible without God's judgment because of who God is. Who was it who was outside of the city who was crushed on the cross? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these amazing words... In Isaiah chapter 63, ultimately are pointing us forward to the cross of Christ. Have you ever wondered when the disciples are speaking to Jesus in Mark chapter 10? And Jesus says to them, can you drink the cup I drink? Cup there is a reference to the suffering that Jesus is about to endure. He's saying to his disciples, can you bear the wrath of God for the sins of the whole world? You can't. Only one can, one who is perfect, the sinless, spotless lamb. Have you ever wondered what Jesus is meaning when he at the Last Supper in Mark chapter 14 says, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. He holds up the cup of wine. And friends, it was the blood of Jesus, wasn't it, that was poured out in the wine press of God's wrath outside the city on the cross. Do you see what's going on in Revelation 14? Do you see what's going on in Isaiah chapter 63? And why did the Son of God hang on that cross to face experience the full weight of God's wrath. Why was his blood shed, as it were, in the wine press of God's anger? Answer, because he loves you. And this is something that breaks my heart because so many people in the world just reject God. But they're rejecting the one who loves them more than their wife could love them, rejects them more than their children could love them, rejects them more than anything and anyone could love them. This is the tragedy, is that people dismiss the God of the Bible because perhaps of a wrong caricature of who he is or a bad experience as a child. They don't know this God, the God of the Bible who loves them. And it should stir our emotions. It should move us. God has in his love to deal with what is wrong. And that means he's got to deal with you and he's got to deal with me. And the answer is, I pay for my sin Oh, my Saviour pays for my sin. And I thank God that my Saviour has paid for my sin. And so as we close, here are three questions for you to reflect on. I want to ask you, are you thankful for the wrath of God? Perhaps seeing it in a slightly different light, in the full context of how it's meant in Revelation 14. Are you humbled that Jesus died in your place? And for those who know Christ, will you resolve by the grace of God to be braver in your witness, to actually live in light of Revelation 14? Well, this series in Revelation will continue in the weeks to come. But as I close, remember the work of the devil 
Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, the one who leads the whole world astray. And friends, one of the ways that the devil wants to lead us astray is for us to ignore Revelation 14, to ignore this difficult doctrine. He wants to lead us astray by us ignoring this and pretending it won't happen. But as the devil is seeking to lead all of us astray, I want to hold up today the cross of Christ and say to all of us, will you cling to the one who loves you more than you'll ever realize? And will you, as we close then, join with the psalmist who asked this wonderful question in Psalm 116. What shall I return to the Lord for all his goodness to me? I wonder how you'd answer that. But this is how the psalmist responds. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will lift up Christ because he has won my salvation for me. And I will call on the name of the Lord thanking him for his forgiveness for me and longing that those who don't know to him would turn to him in repentance and faith. What a wonderful way to respond to the extraordinary love of God. Amen.